Welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. This is the podcast where we dissect and analyze the power of storytelling and learn how to harness it to supercharge our everyday lives. I'm Gorv. And I'm Kevin. You know, Kev, that little line that I say at the beginning of the podcast, if people listen to the show, they know it's a pretty consistent line. It's the way we set the tone for every episode, which makes it so important energy-wise. But at the same time, it's important that we're consistent about it because we're trying to lay in that message very early on. And that's story time. Right there, that first line, we have to set the tone. We got to lay in the central theme of the show. And we got to draw people in and give people a familiar feeling for the ones who've listened before. Think about how much power there is in that just communicating that one line. Yeah, I mean, I think back to a lot of the different podcasts that I listen to. You know, it's definitely important to have that kind of consistency. And if you think of really well-known podcasts like uh, Robin Hood's Snacks Daily, when they start off with the same kind of high energy, uh, which you'd expect from a daily news program, that kind of energy is important to convey the the message to your listeners that this is going to be fun, entertaining content that uh, the audience is going to like digesting. So yeah, totally agree. Yeah, it's it's a communication aspect. And you got to find that balance. And even though it seems so mundane, it plays such a key role because that's what communication is. Communication and storytelling go hand in hand. And it's it's very more often not about the words you say, but how you say them. Because we're, we're a very emotional and empathetic race. So it's so important that we can feel and we make other people feel something in any types of storytelling. It's acting, whether it's in the boardroom, whether it's uh, on the stage, whether it's in a podcast, whether it's meeting with your team. The way you say things, the way you convey yourself is so important. And that's why there's the field of storytelling coaching. Kev, who are we talking to today? And today we are talking uh, to Mark Dannenberg. If you've enjoyed our episode earlier this season with Neil Hoyne, Mark is actually the storytelling coach who coaches Neil to tell better stories. Um, So we are so glad uh, to be able to talk to Mark today all about uh, storytelling and particularly the aspect of how to better express uh, your intentions, how to uh, act better. So let's get to it. Today we are so glad to be joined by Mark Denenberg, uh, and I will tell you his story, but I should really leave it up to himself to share his story with us. So Mark, to get us started, can you tell us a bit about yourself? What is your story? Yeah, well, you know, what I always tell people is your life is, uh, one's life is just the amalgamation of stories. So to narrow it down, um, my background is that I grew up in the Bay Area during the first uh, dot-com boom. My big sister is about six years older than me. I followed her everywhere, did everything she did. She got into theater. I followed. She went on to use her skills to much more effect. She's a history teacher still in the Bay Area. Uh, But I couldn't shake the bug, Uh, continued to do theater, went to UCLA, School of Theater, Film, and Television, studied in London my junior year, really fell in love my junior and senior year of college with Shakespeare predominantly. 
ended up going to grad school here in the States at the University of Delaware's professional theater training program. Great program, really put me in good stead to, when I left college, go out and work at regional theaters all over the country. And so one friend and I decided that we were going to move to Chicago. Uh, shortly after I started working at theaters in Chicago, a couple of grad school classmates um, told me that they were working as coaches. And I said, coaching what? <laughs> and they were, uh, at that time, coaching presence and coaching specifically vocal presence. Uh, and in that, at that time, many, much of what they asked were asking me to do was accent reduction work. But I really didn't actually enjoy that. Uh, as much as I tried to reframe that work as accent acquisition, what my clients always wanted was for me to eliminate, <laughs> right? <laughs> Fix the problem, Mark. Uh, so I didn't actually enjoy that, but it was my aim to coach it. And subsequently, I started coaching people on vocal presence that didn't have to do with the way they created sound in terms of dialect, but in the way in which they created sound in terms of getting it to reach their audience in a way that didn't feel harmful for their vocal cords and that sort of thing. And then I started getting recruited by this company outside of Boston called The Aerial Group, uh, which is a company that hires and trains actors with business backgrounds to facilitate programs in leadership and executive presence. So once I started doing that, that led me into storytelling and really honing my techniques and styles and uh, still work with Ariel. They're a wonderful company based still outside of Austin. Uh, and I also about four years ago started my own company, Mark Dannenberg Coaching, working on not just storytelling, but vocal presence, emotional intelligence, um, difficult conversations, all sorts of things that really come back to at their core what I started doing when I was following my sister around as a little kid, which is training to have this particular set of tools uh, that an actor needs to be successful and saying, okay, well, are any of these useful for people who aren't actors? And for the past 10 plus years, the answer to that question has been a surprising <laughs> but resounding, yeah, yeah, in all sorts of ways that I never truly uh, would have guessed, even though growing up in the Bay Area in that first dot-com boom, I had loads of friends' parents who were CEOs, big-time consultants, who always said, Mark, you're gonna be such a great businessman all those things you're doing in that in, on stage are gonna really make you successful in business. And at the time, to me, that was the biggest insult I could receive. <laughs> I don't wanna be a business person, I wanna be an actor. Um, and I still am, I still do, I do, um, I've got a family now, so I do it less because it doesn't fit into our lives. But uh, I've done a couple episodes of different show, uh, TV shows that shoot here in Chicago, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, uh, a couple others that aren't on the air anymore. And that's just kind of fun stuff I do on the side, though. My primary focus and joy is coaching. What I loved about your answer here was this idea of um, tools, applicable tools to different fields. And that's kind of why we started this show, because we believe that storytelling is an essential skill to being human. It's how we present ourselves. It's how we grow in any single field. And we believe it's a skill that can be developed. I'm so curious, as a storytelling coach, someone who is there to train people in these skills and kind of quantify it. How do you go about that? How do you take something as kind of abstract, the storytelling, and find specific activities and tasks to help someone develop their skills in it? Basically, what I think about with storytelling is that this is a skill that is 
both over and underutilized. And it tends to be overutilized by people who are not strategically, at least, very good at storytelling uh, and underutilized by people who actually probably have a lot to share, uh, but either are afraid to do so uh, or can't quite find the right opportunity. So, you know, the thing, you know, I said earlier, of course, our lives are just this story after story after story. One of the things that I coach people to do, uh, usually towards the end of our work together, once we've honed some of the techniques, is I encourage them to take some time every week and reflect on the week and come up with one story to tell in the way that we've been working, not to anybody, because I don't care that they use it. I want them to practice crafting a story, telling it in a manner that's concise, clear, and engaging. And that story can be about the trip to Home Depot yesterday, or it can be about how you were able to get this project finished that nobody thought you could finish. Right? It doesn't have to be at work. Uh, or it could be a fight you had with your two-year-old. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so just to find, just to recognize, oh yeah, I, I do have stories to tell. And then practice crafting them so that when you have a situation that require or that might benefit from the use of a strategic story, you've already been practicing crafting stories. So now it's just a matter of crafting one that has a particular lesson or objective that's going to help overcome the particular obstacle that you may have. Oh, that's really interesting. I would love to kind of double click on that a bit. This idea of telling yourself a clear story. How do you quantify that? How can I, like, I know so many times where I will rehearse a quick intro for the show in my head. And then when I go to tell Kevin it, it's just a mess. And I just ramble, but it felt clear in my head. So how do you kind of gain that confidence where you know it sounds clear to me and actually this sounds clear to someone else? There's a lot of ways to answer that question and I don't want to get really technical. Right? <laughs> but broadly what my recommendation and what I do is before I, I don't just lead a program and tell a story off the cuff. Not generally. I might on my coffee break, you know, when we're walking down the hall. But if I've got a group of people who have paid to be listening to me, they're not paying to hear me practice storytelling. They're paying to hear a honed story. So when I'm working on a story that I might be uh, about to use, first, I tell it totally unencumbered. Just how do I want to tell this story? And I tell it to, my, you know, to the wall or to my cat. And I time it. And generally speaking, I'll time myself, and it will always be at least five to 10 minutes long that first time out. But then I'll listen back to it. And then I'll listen for what's really the point of this story? Why am I telling this story? And once I can truly quantify that, then I can start to trim and cut the fat uh, and make sure that there are certain things that are really engaging on an emotional level, that I'm not telling the moral of the story through the story. I want the moral to be an obvious connection, but one that the audience doesn't make necessarily while I'm telling it, because they're engaged in the story itself. The first story that I ever worked on in this way, and it was, I was taking a class to be clear. What they asked for was just think of a, a story from your childhood. And I thought of this story about when I was in fifth grade and I was getting bullied. 
And all of a sudden I realized that there were some really good morals to this story that were really applicable in lots of different areas in my life, right? But the way that I told the story the first time, it wasn't very interesting. The story essentially sounded like this. So, uh, you know, back in fifth grade, I was kind of a pudgy kid. And there was this other kid whose name shall be protected in this particular format. He, uh, he chased me home from school for a really long time. And then, uh, you know, he beat me up. And then it was over. Not a very compelling story, <laughs> right? But that was me just remembering it. And you don't want to tell a story by remembering it with your audience. Then when I went back through, I was like, well, what happened the day I got caught, that he caught me? Where was I? What did it feel like? What else was going on? What did he say when he saw me? And I remember that. He said, where are you going, fatty? <laughs> right? I was like, okay, that's got to be a part of the story. Uh, and I started just mining that moment in my life for how could I tell this story in a way that now when I tell that story, depending on what I want the learning to be, it lasts between 60 and 90 seconds. I don't know a whole lot of business situations where people could not find or make an argument for telling a 60 second story or a less than two minute story, let's just say, with a really clear impact that might really motivate a team or inspire someone to overcome a particular obstacle. If, it was, if you could feel strongly that it would actually have that impact, two minutes is a win. Because what tends to happen is people talk in circles and circles and circles for weeks upon end and can't get over something. But it takes time to hone that skill. How do you not sound rehearsed? Because I think this is the biggest problem we have sometimes when we have questions and uh, for the show and, and or when we're reading off a page or when we're um, reading word for word or memorizing questions. Like it's, it's a difficulty of not sounding robotic. This is an actor's skill that we really need to dig in on when I'm working with someone. Because if I'm auditioning for a theater company, I can tell you there is an audition monologue that I have literally used hundreds of times. It may have broached, uh, broken a thousand, frankly, at this point. It has to sound like it's the first time because it is the first time for your audience. And you have to respect your audience. That's really one of the core tenets of acting is respect for one's audience. I can't assume that because I've told it a million times or said it a million times, that they can follow it, follow what I'm saying as quickly as it can come out of my mouth, right? So then what tends to happen for people is because they do have this fear that you aptly mentioned, which is I don't, I can't feel by rote, can't feel mechanical, it must be genuine and authentic. And I 100% agree. The problem that people tend to have, and I actually had a client who illuminated this for me. What people tend to conflate are two different things, practicing and preparing. People are really good at preparing, right? That's getting the what of your communication. What do I want to say? People are terrible at practicing, meaning saying it out loud like your audience was there in the room. What I constantly am telling people is, you haven't practiced too much. You've practiced too little. And in fact, you're just starting. <laughs> You've got to practice more so you can get past that feeling of by roteness 
so that you're actually just in the moment sharing and flexible. And you know, this, this phrase gets overutilized being in the moment, but you can't be in the moment if you're in your head trying to remember what to say. It's like, um, I, I learned this in like eighth grade science, but the idea of understanding versus memorization, right? Yes. It's about understanding that meaning, understanding why these things connect versus memorizing the equation. Absolutely. I forget the term that my, uh, one of my acting mentors had for this, um, but I, there's lots of different ways of talking about it. I had one acting mentor who talked about it as, are you off book is the actor's term for memorize. And so they said, it's, you are, are you off book or are you just off book in the shower? Meaning when actors are in the shower running through their lines, like imagine just saying it without any intentionality to it, just like to be or not to be, that is the question whether there's no one in the mind that's up with the slings and arrows about rage force or like all of a sudden I'm saying all those words, but they don't mean anything. And I actually, I'm remembering this well because I had a director who heard me backstage once in my twenties doing that. It wasn't Hamlet, it was whatever the play was. I was backstage about to go on and I was running my lines really, really fast. And he says, Mark, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm practicing. And he said, why would you practice that? Right? That's not what I'm going to do when I get out on stage. So what am I practicing? And I think that's what people do a lot is they consider that to be practicing. And that's why I say practicing isn't just saying it out loud. It's saying it out loud like your audience is there in the room with you. Shakespeare is such a great example of that because I know just from my cursory knowledge of Shakespeare from school, memorizing that old English was tough. Right? And it got easier if you actually had kind of like the current English translation where you could understand what they were saying so you could follow the conversation a bit more and how tying meaning to those words instead of just trying to memorize them makes all the difference. Well, and Neil had a really funny point. Actually, I played your podcast as part of your podcast for my wife because he said, I think the term was confidence interval, but he said, I've got this coach. Uh, he's an actor. And if I say something about confidence intervals, he'll be like, I don't know what that is. But it's absolutely true. If you are using jargon of some kind, and Shakespeare is a type of jargon. If you're using jargon without respecting your audience, right? There's a, one of my, when I was 17, I learned a sonnet, one of Shakespeare's sonnet. And the first line really turned me off. I was like, I don't get this. I don't understand it. I don't like it. The first line was, betwixt mine eye and heart, a league is took. And each doth good turns now unto the other. Now I heard that, and as soon as soon as I got to a leak is took, I was like, nope, sorry, don't get it. I'm out. I'm gonna go listen to some music. Bye. But our instructor had a lexicon in the middle of the room, Shakespeare lexicon, and said, I want you to look up all the words you don't know. So I go and I open it up. And a league is uh, another way in Shakespeare's time that you could say a deal is made or a contract is signed. A league is took means like a contract is made. So now I look back at this first line and it says, betwixt mine eye and heart, a league is took and each doth good turns now into the other. Oh, that makes sense. Between my mind and my heart, a deal is made and they're each gonna have each other's back. And then it goes on to be a love sonnet about how when I can't be with my lover, my mind supports my heart, my heart supports my mind by giving the other a picture. 
and it goes on, and it's just this beautiful 14-line, as all sonnets are, poem that I'm not going to bore your audiences, but I have memorized to this day. It's that idea of you can't assume your audience knows the jargon, whether it's a business term or Shakespeare. You've got to respect your audience. You've got to acknowledge how can I make sure that it's palpable for them hearing this for the first time and then I'm not just rushing through it because I'm afraid that they've got a meeting that starts in five minutes and they're going to interrupt me. Yeah, and that's definitely, you know, a, a great principle to keep in mind when practicing is to check, you know, what assumptions I already have that uh, my audience might not have to make sure that everything that needs to be explained is clearly stated. This happens in the show all the time because we've had um, different guests from different kind of worlds that I, I get a little obsessed with different things. Like I, I'm really into comic books. So we've had a lot of comic book guests okay. and Kevin is not. So on multiple occasions, Kevin's been like, we got to stop. We're going down this weird Avengers <laughs> of the X-Men hole. No one's going to get it. And it's almost as if before the show, I told Kevin, don't research this too much because I need you to pull me back. And I want to circle back to your earlier point about um, being concise uh, <laughs> and also including, you know, the, the right details in a story, uh, which Gaurav will recall is uh, one of the points of discussion we had in our very first episode of this podcast mm. uh, with Dr. Terry Prescott Johnson, uh, who is a UCLA writing uh, professor. So my question here kind of calls on your acting background, too, because I'm wondering, you know, as a storytelling coach now, you are, you know, trying to ingrain these principles uh, to the people you're coaching. But as an actor, how or when did you kind of learn the skill of being concise? And how uh, is being concise manifested when you're acting? Because to me, who have never been an actor who knows nothing about professional acting, I feel like, you know, you have a script or you have a story in mind that you're going to act out. Where do you have to pick and choose? You know, that's too much. I need to be more concise in acting. Does that ever happen? It's an interesting question. You know, obviously it's more for the writer to be concise when it comes to words. But this is one of the things that happens in rehearsal practice. And I have a great mentor who passed away, the great Jewel Walker. And he was actually the mime on the Mr. Rogers program, Mime Walker. Uh, that's probably what he was most famous for, other than the fact that he's trained many, many, many hundreds of brilliant actors. And what his coaching methodology was, was that you can only put one thing into the play at, the, at a time. One thing at a time. So this isn't necessarily about one word at a time, although it encapsulates that too. So, you know, the example of earlier with me saying the to be or not to be speech too quickly. It's about being present to each word as you're saying it, making sure that each word lands before I move on to the next word. And the metaphor that I use for that is I like to think of my words as darts. And if I'm throwing those darts and they're hitting the board, then my message is going to have a very high probability of landing with my audience and being actionable. If I'm sticking so quickly, the darts are flying all up. Like growing up, I had a dartboard on my childhood door dart holes all over that door. <laughs> and I think people speak in a similar way. They're just throwing darts everywhere. Some of them land on the floor. Some of them go out the window. Who the hell knows? Oh, but I, I said it. 
You can't say I didn't say it. I'll show you the recording of me saying it. I don't care if you said it. Did it get heard? So on the one hand, it's about saying, making sure that your words are such that you're really landing one thing at a time, but it's from a physical perspective too. You know, this is a person who is a trained mime. You can only put one action into the play at a time. So if you're moving and talking at the same time, the audience is only gonna be able to follow one of those two things. They're either gonna be wondering what you're moving towards or paying attention to the words coming out of your mouth. So can you move towards the glass that you need to pick up? Pick it up, turn, say words. It's just each of those things happens one at a time and it's very quick one right after the other. But in terms of conciseness, I think that's what I think about when, when you in terms of acting, it reminds me of Jewel and the idea of making sure that each thing that you do vocally and physically has space and is happening one after the other, not concurrently. For both me and Kevin, concision is not our strong suit, um, especially me. It's been feedback that I've gotten a lot. <laughs> I think it has a lot to do with confidence doing. And I feel like when I'm less confident about something or know something but less, I feel like I want to say everything because it's almost as if I want the other person to know everything mm. so they can verify my thought process, right? That comes up so often when people are concerned about Q&A, right? Because if you can prepare what you want to say, you can focus on concision. But how do you focus on concision when it's off the cuff? And so for that, one of the things that I spend a lot of time focusing with people on is, I joke that the things I coach people on fall into the category of simple, but not easy. Simple in that there's nothing complex in any of my coaching. And not easy because it can be hard to implement. But the thing that helps concision is awareness and use of breath. Where are you breathing? Musicians have a great skill at this, right? If you're a trumpet player, you can only get through X number of notes before you need to take a breath. And that breath is noted in the score, in the music. We don't work like that. And so when I'm working with people on a deck, I will ask them to you know, work with, we'll work together to score, not necessarily where exactly they will always breathe, but where are the places where they could breathe? And even more importantly, where are the places where they ought not breathe sometimes? Because if you breathe in the wrong spot, it can really alter the rhythm of a piece of content in a way that makes it really sound just difficult to understand. Breath is definitely a foundation upon that you need to build before you can do all the other things that one's manager told them they need to improve on. It'd be like, you need to be louder. Okay, great. But if you're not breathing, then your gas tank is empty. You can't be louder. So that's a dumb piece of coaching. <laughs> like, Go be louder. I can't. My gas is, you know, my car can't drive. I have no gas. You know, there's so much mindfulness in that too. You know, I'm a, I'm a person who's a big, I'm very into mindfulness and mm -hmm. it's helped me a lot to slow down because that's been an issue for me going too fast. It's taking breaths and slowing down and being in the present moment. And I love how much this ties into your storytelling lesson so far. Like um, what you said is the words are darts taking time to be in present with each word you are saying, taking the time to breathe. I love this connection between storytelling, mindfulness, and communication. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of the discussion we've had so far has to do with establishing our vocal presence. 
uh, which I know is a huge part of your coaching. But given that, you know, we are on online meeting right now, and so many people have been working through the remote environment, how do you establish and strengthen your physical and vocal presence in such an environment? Well, the good news is that a lot of the coaching is actually really similar virtually versus in person. The, that um, when people moved to virtual full time, including me, right? I was traveling all over the world doing this. I've been on, on this work on five continents in person, six virtually now. <laughs> but it really was phenomenal because people didn't feel as strong of a need to, to work on their presence in person because they were used to bad habits and they were used to each other's bad habits. But all of a sudden we got on Zoom or choose your platform and people felt like, wow, I look terrible. My colleagues look terrible. We sound terrible. What's wrong? And the truth is there's a camera close to your face so you can just see it more. <laughs> and you know, the microphone's right there. You can hear it. But the number one thing that I say to people is get your body involved and your voice will come along for the ride, right? So, you know, obviously this is a podcast, but you can see behind me, there's a nice comfy leather chair back there. Mm -hmm. I sit in that chair when I'm just sitting doing emails. I push it back there when I'm going to be on a Zoom call because I actually want to sit in this chair that is a sturdy wooden chair that my feet are planted on the floor. I'm holding my body up. That has a huge impact on my use of voice and breath. If I'm concave in that chair and I'll twirl around back and forth and be bouncing and all these things. And my words will do what my body is doing. My words will kind of slough off at the end of sentences because I'm slouched. And so, so first of all, I, I set up my space such that my body can be involved. But there's another side of this that's a huge benefit for people. Frequently people are like, I never know what to do with my hands. Well, Great news. Nobody can see them if you frame your camera so that it's like shoulder across the shoulders and up. Um, you can do all the gesturing you want below the camera and nobody can see it. And then just save the really additive gestures for the ones that you utilize in the view of the camera. But it is important to know what is that little box? What's in the box? What's not in the box on that camera? What's interesting is we had a cognitive psychologist on the show. I was going to bring that up too. <laughs> uh, so we had a cognitive neuroscientist. I think she's both. But anyways, uh, Dr. Sahai Youssef, and she is she's a genius. And it's interesting because we were talking about, well, Botox has skyrocketed in uh, COVID. Hilarious. <laughs> um, because of this thing about the camera, because the camera's in face, because we're saying ourselves so much. And what uh, the, what this amazing cognitive neuroscience told us was one of the best things we can do is close self-view. Don't turn off your camera, oh. close self-view. Yep. Because your mind is not, because we spend so much time with these neural pathways and our mind's not designed to be looking at ourselves. Mm -hmm. Even looking at different people's views, it's so important. So I, I love what you were saying, and I'm sure Kevin has more to add about this, but I love what you were saying about um, using it as a tool, Zoom. So you understand your parameters, but you don't get lost in it. You understand how to use it effectively. And I think that's one of the things that's so key in this virtual environment, communication and confidence is understanding how the tool works for you and how it doesn't. And we've all been on Zoom long enough to know all I need to do when I get on Zoom in terms of looking at myself is make sure 
that the camera is using my webcam and not my computer cam because that's a weird mm -hmm. thing. sometimes that happens and that I just check make sure I didn't like forget a miss a button you know miss button my shirt or something like that and then hide that self view because there's only two places I ever want to look when I'm communicating via virtual platform video platform one is into the camera which predominantly I want to look at when I'm speaking and the other is at the faces of my audience and I don't want my face in there which is predominantly what I'm going to do when I'm listening. What I don't ever want to do if I, is, there's always the difference between transactional interactions and like where you're actually trying to motivate or change people's points of view. If it's just transactional, sure, I've got my other monitor up here and I'm talking to someone without looking at them. Because fine, I'm not, I'm not building a relationship. Uh, this is not a relational conversation. But if it is a relational conversation, two spots, camera, and your little boxes. I don't want to be looking at multiple cameras. And you know what? I wouldn't if this was in person. So it's the same skill set. I'm not going to go and have a meeting in person with someone, with the CEO of my company, and bring my laptop and be looking at my laptop the whole time, let alone phone. Yeah, that is such an interesting way uh, to tackle this cognitive challenge that we had about being so self-conscious now that we have a webcam that allows us to uh, see what we look like all the time. And, and I love that. I love the approach you've described because I think it's such a unique approach that I think only an actor can really think of because I think it incorporates the idea of mise-en-scene, which I, if I recall correctly from the one film class I took at UCLA, is choosing, you know, what to include or not include in the frame uh, when you're, you know, filming something in the camera. Uh, so that's great. And, and the idea of, you know, sitting between different chairs, that's almost like uh, stepping into different characters to complete the different uh, types of tasks you have in your day-to-day -day work. So those are very, you know, actionable steps we can all take to get ourselves more adapted to this remote environment and establish our presence. And to be clear, I can't wait to get back in person. I've done a lot of And I vastly prefer coaching people and leading group courses in person. And there's some benefits, right? Like I'm in my business mm -hmm. here in Chicago. It's nice to be able to have a chat with you guys and work a little bit. And I know that a huge part of your coaching too uh, is the ability to align your communication, intention, and action so that um, you achieve uh, a desired uh, kind of action and response from your audience. So can you expand a bit on that as well? What is the key to achieve this alignment mm -hmm. uh, and being able to establish, uh, you know, an emotional bond between myself and my audience? And especially with people I probably just met. Well, first of all, I can tell you looked at my website. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely like what I talk about is in our, uh, we've got to, First, we need to figure out what's our intent. What are we trying to get across in our communication? And then can we make sure that our actions align with that intentionality? Now, intention is a key tenet of acting. There's a, oh, I don't know if this is, resonates for you, but frequently when people are sort of mocking an actor or playing like they're being an actor, they'll say, what's my motivation? I need to know my motivation. Well, motivation is another word for intention. What am I doing? Um, in acting, we call this an action verb or just an action for short. 
meaning I want to, my intention is to provoke my audience, to calm my audience, to command my audience. Like those are type of action words. They're active verbs, things that you're doing. Well, if I'm acting in line with that intention, they should sound really different from one another. So I think I just said calm and provoke. Mm -hmm. I'm saying the same sentence two times, once with calm as my intention and once with provoke as my intention, they ought to sound pretty different. So now you're able to access difference in vocal variety, physicality and gesture and facial expression are going to come along for the ride here as well. Um, but I want to provoke and I want to calm can't sound the same. So what I always work with people to find is what's your intention? How can we make sure you're acting in line with that intention from a physical and vocal standpoint? And there's a great quote from a man named Mike Lipkin. He said, uh, he said, who you are being when you're saying what you're saying says more about what you're saying than what you're saying. So as a coach, what I always say is, I'm here to coach you on who you're being when you're saying what you're saying. If you've come to me, you already know the content. You've got the what of your communication nailed down. Let's talk about the how. Who are you being? How are we making sure that you're a human being and not a robot? How are you making sure that people don't turn their cameras off, that they stay engaged? Uh, and, and, and having an awareness of intention is really important because for the most part, when I ask people what their intention is, the answer, the answer is to inform, right? or to educate, to download information to. Well, that's always everybody's intent in business. All, everyone is always trying to inform. So what's the differentiator for you, right? Are you, are you trying to inform them so that they feel warned or so that they feel inspired? It's got to go beyond simple informing because informing is why we get meetings that sound like this. Hey team, thanks for being here. Uh, wanted to tell you about uh, this new project that we're working on. It's going to be really impactful, I think, not only for the organization, but for each of us individually. I'm really excited about it. Um, Steve, why don't you uh, open up with slide three? That was very triggering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine so. And you know, again, I, I get this honestly. Um, it's if, if the, the bar for engagement, I'm going I'm to take away the if, the bar for engagement is that low. That's really low. And people still don't clear it. What actually happens instead is the bar for engagement is that low and people think that anything above that is being over the top. Mm -hmm. And so they get even lower and lower and lower until they are just automatons communicating, it sucks the will to live out of the people speaking, let alone the people listening. And so what I find is when I work with people, they end up feeling like, oh, that felt so much better. Are you sure that it wasn't over the top? And it's like, uh -huh. it's over the top is so far, out, far outside the realm of possibility for most people. It's just about recalibrating up. And it's important because if you're trying to tell a story when you're working from a level of engagement that is that low, well, it's gonna be a lovely bedtime story. To wrap up everyone of our episode, we have this quick segment called Suspenders. It works like this. Uh, we ask you a fun random question that's unrelated to anything whatsoever. 
and you can give us any fun random answer you feel like. All right, pressure's on. All right, question of the day is: If animals could talk, which would be the rudest? I mean, the easy answer. I have two cats. <laughs> <laughs> I love them.、Um, which animal would be the rudest? What you what you can't see inside of my head happening right now is that I'm going through the old McDonald has a farm song that I sing. <laughs> I don't want to miss miss any.、Uh, yeah, my daughter would have a real. I'm gonna ask my daughter this when she wakes up from her nap. <laughs> I'm gonna go with a rat. It's a good answer. Yeah, I mean that's sort of stereotypical, but、uh, that the rudest. They don't give a shit. <laughs> I was、up. gonna say cats, so、yeah. uh, I agree with your first instinct. <laughs> I love them too much. I don't want to put that on. <laughs> Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the key learnings we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week was a really, really cool one for us because we had a bona fide, real-life storytelling coach. And it was so fun to talk to Mark. Not only because、uh, this is someone who specializes in coaching people how to tell stories better, but also from his acting background, we were able to. You know, learn also a bit about the form of storytelling that is acting,、uh, which of course、uh, is very important. So let's dive straight in, Grof. Yeah, I think one of the really cool things we talked about with Mike was this idea of the use of breath in storytelling, and you know, it goes down to a lot of my roots and some stuff I'm really interested in mindfulness and the idea of being present in a moment. Something we've talked about a lot on the show was, is this idea of confidence and confidence in storytelling. How we have both become better storytellers because through the show we've gained more confidence, and that manifests itself in interviews or conversations or just talking about the show. And the way he talked about how with breath and following your breath and being in the moment and slowing things down, you can have more confidence in that moment. Because it makes things feel a little bit less hectic, it lets you be more in control of the moment. So it was such an interesting idea about how just something simple as focusing on your breath, being present, dropping into the moment—all very key mindfulness techniques—can make us better storytellers and allow us to focus on the message itself. And another essential aspect to being in the moment is. Establishing your physical presence when you're talking,、uh, and of course, this is particularly harder、uh, now that so many of our conversations are、uh, remote, where you know you and your audience aren't necessarily in the room together physically. But、uh, Mark gave us a very important pointer that. Uh, there are so ways you can make yourself feel more physically present, and one example he used was that he would sit in different chairs for different types of tasks he has to do during the day.、Uh, so you know that is something、uh, I, I think everyone can try. There's also things like switching to a different outfit. Like、uh, you, you can definitely have. 
uh, your business attire separate from your casual attire. Uh, and by doing stuff like that, uh, you are telling yourself mentally that, okay, this is the character that I'm going to get into. I'm going to be the business storyteller from this point on. And that's going to help us uh, also better prepared for being in the moment to tell a better story. You know, Kevin, it's so interesting because, you know, I'm a very symbolic person. And one of the key ways I do this is through my outfits. I'm very rigid, especially when working from home in that I have a very specific type of clothing or work outfit is uh, different than my leisure outfit. I live in a studio apartment, so it in my desk, like you can see my bed right now. My It's a half a foot from my bed. It would be very easy to get up, roll out of bed and go straight to work. But taking that time to sit and um, change and put on a different outfit gets me into that character. It's like Jared Leto and method acting. We're all playing characters of ourselves in different versions. And using those tools to kind of get yourself into character is really key for the types of stories you want to tell with different people. This has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tide podcast. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at LSPTPod, LinkedIn, Linen Suit and Plastic Tie. Leave us a comment and review to let us know what you're thinking.